Let's pray. Eternal Triune God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the chance to worship you today and to encounter your word, your word that is unchanging, that though the grass withers and the flowers fade, your word stands forever, and it offers us the truth of eternal life and relationship with you. So we pray, Lord, that as we hear your word today, that our desires might be transformed, that we might encounter your grace, that we might know your love applied to us, that we might be prepared to live in your will. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same intention. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin, so as to live for the rest of your earthly life no longer by human desires, but by the will of God. You have already spent enough time in doing what the Gentiles like to do, living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you no longer join them in the same excesses of dissipation, and so they blaspheme. But they will have to give an accounting to him who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was proclaimed even to the dead, so that, though they had been judged in the flesh as everyone is judged, they might live in the spirit as God does. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It is an odd thing to live as a stranger, To live in a culture with which you are unfamiliar, to be a foreigner is an odd thing. Many of you know that I spent a summer in Central America, four weeks in Guatemala and six weeks in El Salvador. My first morning in Central America, I woke up and the uh, mom of the host family that I was living with had made breakfast. I was excited for a hot breakfast and I went downstairs and for breakfast we had hot dogs and rice and beans wasn't the breakfast I was expecting, but it turned out to be the breakfast that we had most every day. Sometimes they would throw in some fried plantains or some fresh mango or some eggs, but rarely was it the sort of breakfast that you would expect to eat here in the United States. Not stuff that I eat every day, But every day in Guatemala, it was hot dogs and what they called casamientos. It was rice and beans. They had it it together so often that they called it marriage. They uh, They called it the word for marriage because they were always eaten together. And then when I took a mission trip to Nicaragua a few years later, we had uh, folks from the church with me, and uh, for breakfast they served something very similar. The whole mission team was a little bit thrown off, but I was not at all surprised. I thought, well, I've had this breakfast in Guatemala, it'll be very familiar here. And one of the youth on the trip came in and sat down, and he said, I don't want rice and beans for breakfast. And the waitress came and asked him if he, wanted, uh, if he wanted a hot breakfast, and he said yes. And I said, but no casamientos, no rice and beans. And she looked at me like I was crazy. It turns out that in Nicaragua, they don't call rice and beans marriage. They call it speckled rooster. And so she was wondering if I was asking her if she wanted to marry me. It's a strange thing to be in a foreign land and to recognize that things work very differently. 
When I moved to Guatemala, they took me the first day I was there when I had had no, no Spanish classes to speak of. They, they took me to a birthday party for one of their cousins and expected me to understand what was going on. I was a stranger in a strange land. When the family that I lived with in Guatemala, the, the dad of the family, he worked in a body repair shop. And I assumed that the body repair shop would work the same way as it does here, that when cars are wrecked, they would mostly get new parts and install those new parts and move through a lot of cars in the course of time. But in the full month that I was there, uh, the dad of the family worked on only two cars. He spent weeks at a time repairing one car. It was his project, his job to get that car back to perfection Because parts were so expensive and labor was so inexpensive, he would pull out every piece of metal and straighten it and fashion it back into the shape it was supposed to be in and then repaint it. That was his work. It was very different than the way body shops work here. And towards the end of my time in Guatemala, before we headed to El Salvador, I needed a haircut. And the dad of of my host family, he said, don't let them charge you more than 20 And he said this in Spanish, of course. He was worried that because I was an American, they would try to charge me more. So I go into the barbershop, and the guy says that it'll be 15 quetzales is the currency in Guatemala. And I thought that when he said 15, he said 50. Because much like in English and Spanish, those words are familiar. So I was negotiating with him backwards. I said, no, I'm not going to pay you 15. I'm only going to pay you 20. And he was terribly confused. And the irony of all of it was that 15 quetzales was about $2. 50 quetzales would have been $7. Neither of those prices is absurd for a haircut. But I was living in a different place, in a strange land. In Central America, time is more flexible. If you show up to someone's house, they're going to drop everything and spend time with you for as long as you want. It makes for beautiful hospitality. If you're waiting on those people that someone dropped in to visit, though, it's terribly frustrating because they're no longer on your schedule. They're on someone else's. For the whole summer in El Salvador, uh, myself and three other men about my size, along with the president of the Methodist Church of El Salvador, rode around in a car that's smaller than my Prius, and no one thought it was odd. Everything about living there was different. And when I came home, there were some shocks to the system. Some things were wonderful. I was excited to have bacon and eggs for breakfast. I was very excited to have a proper cheeseburger. But I also had to adjust again to living so independently, to having my own car and my own space, to be able to go wherever I wanted. There's pressure whenever we live in a certain culture to adapt to it to make as little impact as we can, to not stand out, to blend in so that we can feel like we belong and everyone else knows that we belong too. It affects what clothes we wear. It affects what food we eat. It affects what we do for fun. In the South, if you ask someone what they do for fun, they hunt or fish or watch football. If you ask the same question to a similar man in Colorado, he's going to say that he hikes and climbs and skis and kayaks. In Central America, they watch soccer and baseball rather than football and baseball, though they still call it football. It's just a very different sport. 
It affects what we spend our money on, too. It affects everything about how we assume we should live. The family that I lived with in El Salvador, they had a washer and a dryer to wash our clothes, but they never used the dryer. They never used the dryer because they had a subsidy for their electricity bill, but if they went over it, they had to pay the whole bill. It was too risky to use the dryer and have to pay that much money a month. As Peter writes to the church in Asia Minor, one of the things that he has to say is that your neighbors don't recognize you anymore. You won't go to the theater with them because the plays are a little too risque. You won't go to their violent sporting events because you see different dignity in the human person. You don't like to stay up drinking wine anymore like you used to and partying. You don't lead your family in burning incense to, the, to Caesar and instead of saying Caesar is Lord, you say that Jesus is Lord. They look at you and they say, you are so different than you used to be. And the God that you are serving is pulling you away from who you ought to be. So they blaspheme. They speak ill of the God that has saved the Christians in Asia Minor. Last week, we talked about how Peter says that we are saved through water, that we are saved by water, and that baptism is an appeal to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ for a good conscience. All of what Peter had to say about how we are saved is wrapped up in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And this week, what Peter says is that now that we have received a good conscience from the Lord, God's will becomes the standard for all of our behavior. It's no longer about what everyone else thinks that we should do, what they think that we should wear, what they think that we should eat, how they think that we should spend our money. We're no longer driven by the same things that drive the rest of the world. Not the avoidance of pain, not the pursuit of pleasure, not economic advantage, not social convenience or the need to fit in and be held in high esteem by our peers. None of those things are as important as following God's will. Don't be any longer driven by the passions and the desires that once drove you, be compelled by the will of God. As we started through 1 Peter in the middle of this pandemic, I told you that time has not stopped, that time has continued to move on, and I also reminded you that the work of the church doesn't stop just because we aren't gathering for worship. But I fear that I've said those things with a little bit too much of a rose tint to the lenses. I worry that I've been a little bit too lighthearted about the weight of the season that we're in. It's heavy for us to be separated again from one another. It's heavy and it's hard, and it's hard even to worship online again. But right now, right now is the time that the church is called to shine to show the difference that Jesus makes in our lives when he saves us by his grace and incorporates into his, us into his life through the waters of baptism. Our mission hasn't stopped, even if it has gotten harder. 
So if you are the church, if I am the church, if we are the church together, have you been on mission in the last few months? Have you been doing everything that you can to honor God and share the love of Christ with a world that desperately needs it? With a world and a community that is reeling and is searching for hope and is full of need? Or have you been entrapped by the excesses of dissipation? Have you been wasting your time? The New Revised Standard Version of the Bible in this text could not make sin sound any more boring or contemptible. Licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, lawless idolatry. If you go to some rebellious high school kids and ask them if they want to do a little carousing and lawless idolatry, I doubt anybody's going to sign up. But Peter is speaking to our appetites. The appetites that once drove us when we still identified as Gentiles. These kinds of appetites still exist. In the last couple of months, there have been fraternities that couldn't imagine not having their rush parties. And so they went ahead with them and they have been the center of the spread of some of the virus that continues to plague our world. They didn't know what to do except to have rush parties. What do you do in the summertime? How do you recruit new people? It's so enculturated that they couldn't imagine not doing it. Can you imagine what would have happened if one of the reliable, committed, long-term members of one of those fraternities said, I can't do that. It's irresponsible right now. Can you imagine the backlash that they would have gotten? Come on, let's have a little fun. We've been shut down for months. We need to let loose a little bit. What all of these things that Peter describes have in common is pleasure and belonging. Licentiousness is uh, sexual behavior that is, um, that is excessive. Carousing is partying and having a good time with a lot of other people. Revels is something similar. All of it is about coming together with other people for pleasure. This is why when you are growing up or as you are growing up, your parents and teachers are so worried about peer pressure. Peer pressure is a sign both in the one putting the pressure on another and the one who's receiving the pressure that they're trying to figure out what it means to belong. The one who's putting pressure on another doesn't want to pursue his pleasures alone. The one who receives the pressure, the pressure is to engage in activity that they know is wrong so that they can belong with everyone else. It's about pleasure, sure. But even deeper than that, it's about something else. It's about the deep and innate fear of being alone, of not belonging of being left out of all of the fun and the laughter and the belonging of a community. Wild parties are the ultimate cover for this. They let everyone who's there share in the, in the sheer pleasure of being together without having to reckon with one another as real people who have needs and hurts and ambitions and brokenness. Everyone just pretends that they are all happy and that life is perfect for a little while. And Peter says, you used to pursue pleasure and belonging. 
You used to pursue lawless idolatry. But these are things that cannot save you and will not satisfy you. For most of Moore Memorial, I'd imagine that the last few months haven't been characterized by drunken revelry and lawless idolatry and licentiousness. Though maybe for some of us, you need to hear those words, and you need to repent of them. But for some of us, this desire for pleasure and belonging might take different forms. It might get wrapped up in who we gossip about when we talk bad of others It pushes them aside and pulls us towards the center of belonging. Or we might be wrapped up in public complaining, which functions in much the same way as gossip as we create outsiders and insiders, those who wear masks and those who refuse to or whatever it is. People have done done this in all kinds of ways as we pick our group and we find our belonging and we pile on against the people who disagree with us. Or maybe when you've been unable to go to work, you've been unable to associate with your friends who know you professionally and know how good you are at your job, where you feel like you belong and you know where your place is in the world, And you've been unable to go and have those interactions and you've only been with your family and only with your family you no longer know who you are. And so you've gotten frustrated with your family because you have so deeply wanted to belong in the world that you usually inhabit. Or maybe the cultural language that exists all around us, like the language of personal rights, has become more important to you than the theological language of love. I don't know what it is, but I wonder if you've gotten caught up in this COVID season in the excesses of dissipation. I wonder if your life has looked any different than the rest of the world. I wonder if your life has been centered on the love of God or if it's been centered on something else. Has your life been focused on, your testimony focused on the Jesus Christ who's been revealed to us to save us, and is good for every season, even all of eternity? Or have you gotten sucked into things that corrode your soul? Peter names a bunch of external things. Sexual behavior, wild parties, and drunkenness. All of these things are very energetic things. But then he uses this strange phrase, the excesses of dissipation. The language of dissipation was a favorite of John Wesley's because he felt like it did a great job of describing how gradually we can lose our focus, how slowly our souls that were made to bear the image of God in the world become marred and scarred and broken. Because drunkenness and revelry and carousing, when we don't use those words, actually looks fun but they grate on our souls. They enslave us to our desires and they cannot free us. And instead we find ourselves wasting away those forces operating on our souls in a way that erodes them with deep canyons and deep cuts. Folks who are in recovery, and the truth is that all Christians are in recovery Because all of us are recovering from the sinfulness that used to reign in our hearts. 
They can't run in the same circles that they used to run in anymore. They can't run with the same friends, doing the same things. They have to find a new way to live and a new way to cope. And no one who's living their past life is going to understand. No one is going to comprehend why they have changed in the ways that they have. They're going to look at their friend who stopped drinking or stopped using, and they're going to say, you're not nearly as fun as you used to be. Why don't you come have a good time with us? The truth is that all Christians are in recovery from our addiction to sin. Sin of all kinds that strips away at our souls, that erodes our very being, that scratches and disfigures the image of God in us. And Peter says we've wasted enough time on such things. The whole letter, he's talked about what's valuable, what's imperishable, what's worthwhile, what is going to last, what is precious, and what is fading away. And even in the middle of this COVID season, there is no time to waste. The end of all things is near, Peter says. Be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. If nothing else, I hope in this season you've been praying more earnestly and more regularly than ever. Because if nothing else is clear, it is very clear that we cannot think or act our way out of this mess on our own. Don't get sucked up into your old ways of being, Peter says. Let God's will reign in your lives. Let your good conscience offered to you in your baptism be your guide. Know that God stands ready to judge the living and the dead, even how you've been living in this season. And know that it's not too late for you. It's not too late, but there is no time to waste. Next week, I get to preach the sermon that I like preaching, where we get to talk about all of this positively. What does it look like for us to love and live according to the will of God? But this week, this week we have to talk about what makes us strangers. And it's not just in what we do. It's also in what we don't do. I referred to it earlier, but I want to come back to it because it really needs to sink in. Peter's writing to the church in Asia. These people have always been Gentiles. By classic understandings of ethnography from a Jewish perspective, they are still Gentiles. And yet what Peter says to them is, do not fall back into the desires like the Gentiles. This is a sign of the growing chasm between the church and the rest of the culture, between who the Christians used to be and who they are now, that they're a new race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. For Peter to say, to encourage them not to live according to their passions like the Gentiles do, is like someone who is born and raised in Winona and has moved away and then begins to talk from a distance about Americans. They're still American, but the distance in their cultural perspective has made it possible for them to distance themselves from the American experience to some degree. These people are still Gentiles, 
But what Jesus has done in their lives has separated them so far from what their people eat and drink and how they live and what they worship and what their culture is that the rest of the culture calls them atheists because they don't recognize the triune God whom they worship and they have left behind all the gods and feudal practices of their ancestors. Don't let human desires drive you. Don't let human desires be your motivation. And as we hear this language of human desires, we might think that it only applies to something in us, and it does. But it also applies to others' desires for you. It applies to what sort of pressure you are going to experience from the world that might have nothing to do with the will of God. And to do the will of God might come at a cost. It might include suffering. It might include losses socially in terms of your friend group or in terms of your familial relationships. It might include losses economically that because of what you stand for, people will resist you. It might come with real suffering because the world does not acknowledge the God that you worship. But if you worship for doing good, you are like Jesus. And if you have set aside all of the human desires for the will of God and you're suffering for that, you are done with sin. Like gold that goes through fire so it can be purified, even though gold is perishable, that's what suffering does for the human soul. If focused on God and centered in the will of God, it purifies us and lets us be done with sin. And if you live like that, the reward will prove worth it. The reward that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, will be worth it. But it truly might come at a great cost. It might mean that you feel like a stranger, like a foreigner in your own community where the rest of the community disowns you. And it starts with seriousness, it starts with discipline, and it starts with prayer. This is true not only for this season, but every season. Be serious about your faith. Be ready to give an account for the hope that is in you. Be disciplined. Live in such a way that you are not bound up in the desires of others or your own desires as separate from God so that you may pray and invest yourself deeply in prayer, in communing with the Lord so that you might know his will and do it by his grace. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you and we praise you that you share your will with us, that you transform our desires from what we used to want to do and from what others want us to do so that we can do what you want us to do. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us with your grace, with your courage and your boldness, with delivery from all the sin that entraps us and clings so near, so that we can run with endurance and perseverance the race that you've set before us. We pray that not even suffering would stop us, but that it would purify us and bring us closer to you as we align with you.
who suffered for our sake, that we might be saved. We pray this in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Moore Memorial UMC this morning. At Moore Memorial, we are God's children, sharing the love of Christ through study, worship, and service. The scripture lesson this morning was read by Scott Vance and came from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. If we can be praying for you, please reach out to us online or by phone. You can call us during our office hours Monday to Thursday at 662-283-3804. Again, that's 662-283-3804. Now receive this blessing. May you be strengthened by the hope that we have found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so that you may know and abide in the will of God. 